This is section 25 of What is Man and Other Essays by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Is Shakespeare Dead? Parts 10, 11, 12, and 13. 10. The Rest of the Equipment. The author of the plays was equipped, beyond every other man of his time, with wisdom, erudition, imagination, capaciousness of mind, grace, and majesty of expression. Everyone has said it. No one doubts it. Also, he had humor, humor in rich abundance, and always wanting to break out. We have no evidence of any kind that Shakespeare of Stratford possessed any of these gifts or any of these acquirements. The only lines he ever wrote, so far as we know, are substantially barren of them, barren of all of them. Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear to dig the dust enclosed hair. Blessed be ye man, yet spares these stones, and cursed be he, yet moves my bones. Ben Jonson says of Bacon, as orator, His language, where he could spare and pass by a jest, was nobly censorious. No man ever spoke more neatly, more pressly, more weightily, or suffered less emptiness, less idleness, in what he uttered. No member of his speech but consisted of his, its, own graces. The fear of every man that heard him was lest he should make an end. From Macaulay, he continued to distinguish himself in Parliament particularly by his exertions in favor of one excellent measure on which the king's heart was set, the union of England and Scotland. It was not difficult for such an intellect to discover many irresistible arguments in favor of such a scheme. He conducted the great case of the post-nati in the exchequer chamber, and the decision of the judges, a decision the legality of which may be questioned, but the beneficial effect of which must be acknowledged was in a great measure attributed to his dexterous management. Again, while actively engaged in the House of Commons and in the courts of law, he still found leisure for letters and philosophy. The noble treatise on the advancement of learning, which at a later period was expanded into the De Augmentis, appeared in 1605. The Wisdom of the Ancients, a work which, if it had proceeded from any other writer, would have been considered as a masterpiece of wit and learning, was printed in 1609. In the meantime, the Novum Organum was slowly proceeding. Several distinguished men of learning had been permitted to see portions of that extraordinary book, and they spoke with the greatest admiration of his genius. Even Sir Thomas Bodley, after perusing the Cogitata et Visa, one of the most precious of those scattered leaves out of which the great oracular volume was afterward made up, acknowledged that, in all proposals and plots in that book, Bacon showed himself a master workman, and that it could not be gainsaid but all the treatise overdid, abound with choice conceits of the present state of learning, and with worthy contemplations of the means to procure it. In 1612 a new edition of the Essays appeared, with editions surpassing the original collection both in bulk and quality. Nor did these pursuits distract Bacon's attention from a work the most arduous, the most glorious, and the most useful that even his mighty powers could have achieved. 
the reducing and recompiling to use his own phrase of the laws of england to serve the exacting and laborious offices of attorney-general and solicitor-general would have satisfied the appetite of any other man for hard work but bacon had to add the vast literary industries just described to satisfy his he was a born worker the service which he rendered to letters during the last five years of his life amid ten thousand distractions and vexations increase the regret with which we think on the many years which he had wasted to use the words of sir thomas bodley on such study as was not worthy such a student he commenced a digest of the laws of england a history of england under the princes of the house of tudor a body of national history a philosophical romance he made extensive and valuable additions to his essays he published the inestimable treatise de augmentis scientiarum did these labors of hercules fill up his time to his contentment and quiet his appetite for work not entirely the trifles with which he amused himself in hours of pain and languor bore the marks of his mind the best jest-book in the world is that which he dictated from memory without referring to any book on a day on which illness had rendered him incapable of serious study here are some scattered remarks from macaulay which throw light upon bacon and seem to indicate and maybe demonstrate that he was competent to write the plays and poems with great minuteness of observation he had an amplitude of comprehension such as has never yet been vouchsafed to any other human being the essays contain abundant proofs that no nice feature of character no peculiarity in the ordering of a house a garden or a court mask could escape the notice of one whose mind was capable of taking in the whole world of knowledge his understanding resembled the tent which the fairy pirabuno gave to prince ahmed fold it and it seemed a toy for the hand of a lady spread it and the armies of the powerful sultans might repose beneath its shade the knowledge in which bacon excelled all men was a knowledge of the mutual relations of all departments of knowledge in a letter written when he was only thirty-one to his uncle lord burleigh he said i have taken all knowledge to be my province though bacon did not arm his philosophy with the weapons of logic he adorned her profusely with all the richest decorations of rhetoric the practical faculty was powerful in bacon but not like his wit so powerful as occasionally to usurp the place of his reason and to tyrannize over the whole man there are too many places in the plays where this happens poor old dying john of gaunt volleying second-rate puns at his own name is a pathetic instance of it we may assume that it is bacon's fault but the stratford shakespeare has to bear the blame no imagination was ever at once so strong and so thoroughly subjugated it stopped at the first check from good sense in truth much of bacon's life was passed in a visionary world amid things as strange as any that are described in the arabian tales amid buildings more sumptuous than the palace of aladdin fountains more wonderful than the golden water of parizade conveyances more rapid than the hippogriff of ruggiero arms more formidable than the lance of astolfo remedies more efficacious than the balsam of fierabras yet in his magnificent daydreams there was nothing wild 
nothing but what sober reason sanctioned bacon's greatest performance is the first book of the novum organum every part of it blazes with wit but with wit which is employed only to illustrate and decorate truth no book ever made so great a revolution in the mode of thinking overthrew so many prejudices introduced so many new opinions but what we most admire is the vast capacity of that intellect which without effort takes in at once all the domains of science all the past the present and the future all the errors of two thousand years all the encouraging signs of the passing times all the bright hopes of the coming age he had a wonderful talent for packing thought close and rendering it portable his eloquence would alone have entitled him to a high rank in literature it is evident that he had each and every one of the mental gifts and each and every one of the acquirements that are so prodigally displayed in the plays and poems and in much higher and richer degree than any other man of his time or of any previous time he was a genius without a mate a prodigy not matable there was only one of him the planet could not produce two of him at one birth nor in one age he could have written anything that is in the plays and poems he could have written this the cloud-capped towers the gorgeous palaces the solemn temples the great globe itself yea all which it inherit shall dissolve and like an insubstantial pageant faded leave not a rack behind we are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep also he could have written this but he refrained good friend for jesus sake forbear to dig the dust enclosed hair blessed be ye man yet spares these stones and cursed be he yet moves my bones when a person reads the noble verses about the cloud-capped towers he ought not to follow it immediately with good friend for jesus sake forbear because he will find the transition from great poetry to poor prose too violent for comfort it will give him a shock you never notice how commonplace and unpoetic gravel is until you bite into a layer of it in a pie eleven am i trying to convince anybody that shakespeare did not write shakespeare's works ah now what do you take me for would i be so soft as that after having known the human race familiarly for nearly seventy-four years it would grieve me to know that any one could think so injuriously of me so uncomplimentarily so unadmiringly of me no no i am aware that when even the brightest mind in our world has been trained up from childhood in a superstition of any kind it will never be possible for that mind in its maturity to examine sincerely dispassionately and conscientiously any evidence or any circumstance which shall seem to cast a doubt upon the validity of that superstition i doubt if i could do it myself we always get at second hand our notions about systems of government and high tariff and low tariff and prohibition and anti-prohibition and the holiness of peace and the glories of war and codes of honor and codes of morals and approval of the duel and disapproval of it and our beliefs concerning the nature of cats and our ideas as to whether the murder of helpless wild animals is base or is heroic 
and our preferences in the matter of religious and political parties and our acceptance or rejection of the shakespeare's and the author orton's and the mrs eddy's we get them all at second hand we reason none of them out for ourselves it is the way we are made it is the way we are all made and we can't help it we can't change it and whenever we have been furnished a fetish and have been taught to believe in it and love it and worship it and refrain from examining it there is no evidence howsoever clear and strong that can persuade us to withdraw from it our loyalty and our devotion in morals conduct and beliefs we take the color of our environment and associations and it is a color that can safely be warranted to wash whenever we have been furnished with a tar-baby ostensibly stuffed with jewels and warned that it will be dishonorable and irreverent to disembowel it and test the jewels we keep our sacrilegious hands off it we submit not reluctantly but rather gladly for we are privately afraid we should find upon examination that the jewels are of the sort that are manufactured at north adams massachusetts i haven't any idea that shakespeare will have to vacate his pedestal this side of the year two thousand two hundred nine disbelief in him cannot come swiftly disbelief in a healthy and deeply loved tar-baby has never been known to disintegrate swiftly it is a very slow process it took several thousand years to convince our fine race including every splendid intellect in it that there is no such thing as a witch it has taken several thousand years to convince the same fine race including every splendid intellect in it that there is no such person as satan it has taken several centuries to remove perdition from the protestant church's program of post-mortem entertainments it has taken a weary long time to persuade american presbyterians to give up infant damnation and try to bear it the best they can and it looks as if their scotch brethren will still be burning babies in the everlasting fires when shakespeare comes down from his perch we are the reasoning race we can't prove it by the above examples and we can't prove it by the miraculous histories built by those stradfordilators out of a hatful of rags and a barrel of sawdust but there is a plenty of other things we can prove it by if i could think of them we are the reasoning race and when we find a vague file of chipmunk tracks stringing through the dust of stratford village we know by our reasoning bowers that hercules has been along there i feel that our fetish is safe for three centuries yet the bust too there in the stratford church the precious bust the priceless bust the calm bust the serene bust the emotionless bust with the dandy moustache and the putty face unseamed of care that face which has looked passionlessly down upon the awed pilgrim for a hundred and fifty years and will still look down upon the awed pilgrim three hundred more with the deep 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 subtle 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 expression of a bladder twelve irreverence one of the most trying defects which i find in these these what shall i call them 
for I will not apply injurious epithets to them, the way they do to us, such violations of courtesy being repugnant to my nature and my dignity. The farthest I can go in that direction is to call them by names of limited reverence, names merely descriptive, never unkind, never offensive, never tainted by harsh feeling. If they would do like this, they would feel better in their hearts. Very well, then, to proceed. One of the most trying defects which I find in these Stratfordulators, these Shakespeareids, these thugs, these Bangalores, these troglodytes, these harumphrodites, these blatherskites, these buccaneers, these bandoliers, is their spirit of irreverence. It is detectable in every utterance of theirs when they are talking about us. I am thankful that in me there is nothing of that spirit. When a thing is sacred to me, it is impossible for me to be irreverent toward it. I cannot call to mind a single instance where I have ever been irreverent, except towards the things which were sacred to other people. Am I in the right? I think so. But I ask no one to take my unsupported word. No. Look at the dictionary. Let the dictionary decide. Here is the definition. Irreverence. The quality or condition of irreverence toward God and sacred things. What does the Hindu say? He says it is correct. He says irreverence is lack of respect for Vishnu and Brahma and Krishna and his other gods and for his sacred cattle and for his temples and the things within them. He endorses the definition, you see, and there are three hundred million Hindus or their equivalents back of him. The dictionary had the acute idea that by using the capital G it could restrict irreverence to lack of reverence for our deity and our sacred things, but that ingenious and rather sly idea miscarried, for by the simple process of spelling his deities with capitals the Hindu confiscates the definition and restricts it to his own sects, thus making it clearly compulsory upon us to revere his gods and his sacred things and nobody's else. We can't say a word, for he has our own dictionary at his back, and its decision is final. This law, reduced to its simplest terms, is this. 1. Whatever is sacred to the Christian must be held in reverence by everybody else. 2. Whatever is sacred to the Hindu must be held in reverence by everybody else. 3. Therefore, by consequence, logically and indisputably, Whatever is sacred to me must be held in reverence by everybody else. Now then, what aggravates me is that these troglodytes and muscovites and bandoliers and buccaneers are also trying to crowd in and share the benefit of the law and compel everybody to revere their Shakespeare and hold him sacred. We can't have that. There's enough of us already. If you go on widening and spreading and inflating the privilege, it will presently come to be conceded that each man's sacred things are the only ones, and the rest of the human race will have to be humbly reverent towards them, or suffer for it. That can surely happen, and when it happens, the word irreverence will be regarded as the most meaningless, and foolish, and self-conceited, and insolent, and impudent, and dictatorial word in the language. And people will say, Whose business is it what gods I worship and what things hold sacred? Who has the right to dictate to my conscience, and where did he get that right? 
we cannot afford to let that calamity come upon us. We must save the word from this destruction. There is but one way to do it, and that is to stop the spread of the privilege and strictly confine it to its present limits, that is, to all the Christian sects, to all the Hindu sects, and me. We do not need any more. The stock is watered enough, just as it is. It would be better if the privilege were limited to me alone. I think so, because I am the only sect that knows how to employ it gently, kindly, charitably, dispassionately. The other sects lack the quality of self-restraint. The Catholic Church says the most irreverent things about matters which are sacred to the Protestants, and the Protestant Church retorts in kind about the confessional and other matters which Catholics hold sacred. Then both of these irreverencers turn upon Thomas Paine and charge him with irreverence. This is all unfortunate, because it makes it difficult for students equipped with only a low grade of mentality to find out what irreverence really is. It will surely be much better all around if the privilege of regulating the irreverent and keeping them in order shall eventually be withdrawn from all the sects but me. Then there will be no more quarreling, no more banding of disrespectful epithets, no more heart-burnings. There will then be nothing sacred involved in this Bacon-Shakespeare controversy except what is sacred to me. That will simplify the whole matter and trouble will cease. There will be irreverence no longer, because I will not allow it. The first time those criminals charge me with irreverence for calling their Stratford myth an Arthur Orton Mary Baker Thompson Eddie Lewis the seventeenth veiled prophet of Corazan will be the last. Taught by the methods found effective in extinguishing earlier offenders by the Inquisition of holy memory, I shall know how to quiet them. 13. Isn't it odd, when you think of it, that you may list all the celebrated Englishmen, Irishmen, and Scotsmen of modern times, clear back to the first Tudors, a list containing five hundred names, shall we say, and you can go to the histories, biographies, and cyclopedias, and learn the particulars of the lives of every one of them, every one of them except one, the most famous, the most renowned, by far the most illustrious of them all, Shakespeare. You can get the details of the lives of all the celebrated ecclesiastics in the list, all the celebrated tragedians, comedians, singers, dancers, orators, judges, lawyers, poets, dramatists, historians, biographers, editors, inventors, reformers, statesmen, generals, admirals, discoverers, prize-fighters, murderers, pirates, conspirators, horse-jockeys, bunco-steerers, misers, swindlers, explorers, adventurers by land and sea, bankers, financiers, astronomers, naturalists, claimants, impostors, chemists, biologists, geologists, philologists, college presidents and professors, architects, engineers, painters, sculptors, politicians, agitators, rebels, revolutionists, patriots, demagogues, clowns, cooks, freaks, philosophers, burglars, highwaymen, journalists, physicians, surgeons. You can get the life histories of all of them, but one, just one, the most extraordinary and the most celebrated of them all, Shakespeare. You may add to the list the thousand celebrated persons furnished by the rest of Christendom in the past four centuries, and you can find out the life histories of all those people, too. 
you will then have listed fifteen hundred celebrities and you can trace the authentic life histories of the whole of them save one far and away the most colossal prodigy of the entire accumulation shakespeare about him you can find out nothing nothing of even the slightest importance nothing worth the trouble of stowing away in your memory nothing that even remotely indicates that he was ever anything more than a distinctly commonplace person a manager an actor of inferior grade a small trader in a small village that did not regard him as a person of any consequence and had forgotten all about him before he was fairly cold in his grave we can go to the records and find out the life history of every renowned racehorse of modern times but not shakespeare's there are many reasons why and they have been furnished in cartloads of guess and conjecture by those troglodytes but there is one that is worth all the rest of the reasons put together and is abundantly sufficient all by itself he hadn't any history to record there is no way of getting around that deadly fact and no sane way has yet been discovered of getting around its formidable significance it's quite plain significance to any but those thugs i do not use the term unkindly is that shakespeare had no prominence while he lived and none until he had been dead two or three generations the plays enjoyed high fame from the beginning and if he wrote them it seems a pity the world did not find it out he ought to have explained that he was the author and not merely a nom de plume for another man to hide behind if he had been less intemperately solicitous about his bones and more solicitous about his works it would have been better for his good name and a kindness to us the bones were not important they will moulder away they will turn to dust but the works will endure until the last sun goes down mark twain p s march twenty fifth about two months ago i was illuminating this autobiography with some notions of mine concerning the bacon shakespeare controversy and i then took occasion to air the opinion that the stratford shakespeare was a person of no public consequence or celebrity during his lifetime but was utterly obscure and unimportant and not only in great london but also in the little village where he was born where he lived a quarter of a century and where he died and was buried i argued that if he had been a person of any note at all aged villagers would have had much to tell about him many and many a year after his death instead of being unable to furnish inquirers a single fact connected with him i believed and i still believe that if he had been famous his notoriety would have lasted as long as mine has lasted in my native village out in missouri it is a good argument a prodigiously strong one and most formidable one for even the most gifted and ingenious and plausible stratfordilator to get around or explain away Today a hannibal courier post of recent date has reached me with an article in it which reinforces my contention that a really celebrated person cannot be forgotten in his village in the short space of sixty years i will make an extract from it hannibal as a city may have many sins to answer for but ingratitude is not one of them or reverence for the great men she has produced and as the years go by her greatest son mark twain or s l clemens as a few of the unlettered call him 
grows in the estimation and regard of the residents of the town he made famous and the town that made him famous his name is associated with every old building that is torn down to make way for the modern structures demanded by a rapidly growing city and with every hill or cave over or through which he might by any possibility have roamed while the many points of interest which he wove into his stories such as holiday hill jackson's island or mark twain cave are now monuments to his genius hannibal is glad of any opportunity to do him honor as he has honored her so it has happened that the old-timers who went to school with mark or were with him on some of his usual escapades have been honored with large audiences whenever they were in a reminiscent mood and condescended to tell of their intimacy with the ordinary boy who came to be a very extraordinary humorist and whose every boyish act is now seen to have been indicative of what was to come like aunt becky and mrs clemens they can now see that mark was hardly appreciated when he lived here and that the things he did as a boy and was whipped for doing were not all bad after all so they have been in no hesitancy about drawing out the bad things he did as well as the good in their efforts to get a mark twain story all incidents being viewed in the light of his present fame until the volume of twainiana is already considerable and growing in proportion as the old-timers drop away and the stories are retold second and third hand by their descendants with some seventy-three years young and living in a villa instead of a house he is a fair target and let him incorporate copyright or patent himself as he will there are some of his works that will go swooping up hannibal chimneys as long as graybeards gather about the fires and begin with i've heard father tell or possibly once when i the mrs clemens referred to is my mother was my mother and here is another extract from a hannibal paper of date twenty days ago miss becca blankenship died at the home of william dickison four o eight rock street at two thirty o'clock yesterday afternoon aged seventy-two years the deceased was a sister of huckleberry finn one of the famous characters in mark twain's tom sawyer she had been a member of the dickison family the housekeeper for nearly forty-five years and was a highly respected lady for the past eight years she had been an invalid but was as well cared for by Mr. Dickison and his family as if she had been a near relative. She was a member of the Park Methodist Church and a Christian woman. I remember her well. I have a picture of her in my mind which was craven there, clear and sharp and vivid, sixty-three years ago. She was at that time nine years old and I was about eleven. I remember where she stood and how she looked, and I can still see her bare feet her bare head, her brown face, and her short tolinen frock. She was crying. What it was about I have long ago forgotten. But it was the tears that preserved the picture for me, no doubt. She was a good child, I can say that for her. She knew me nearly seventy years ago. Did she forget me in the course of time? I think not. If she had lived in Stratford in Shakespeare's time, would she have forgotten him? Yes for he was never famous during his lifetime. He was utterly obscure in Stratford, and there wouldn't be any occasion to remember him after he had been dead a week. Injun Joe, Jimmy Finn, 
and general gains were prominent and very intemperate ne'er-do-wheels in hannibal two generations ago plenty of gray heads there remember them to this day and can tell you about them isn't it curious that two town drunkards and one half-breed loafer should leave behind them in a remote missourian village a fame a hundred times greater and several hundred times more particularized in the matter of definite facts than shakespeare left behind him in the village where he had lived the half of his lifetime end of is shakespeare dead and end of section twenty five of what is man and other essays by mark twain read by john greenman